0: That's heritageradionetwork.org slash 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you.
1: OpenTable is a proud sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. For more information, visit their blog, Open for Business, at openforbusiness.opentable.com.
2: Hi, this is Celia Kutcher, host of Animal Instinct, and you are listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Leather britches, creasy greens, soup beans and cornbread, and stack cakes. Foods of Appalachia, or Appalachia, to those who know. Today, on A Taste of the Past. (laughs) The Appalachian region has a history as a mountainous melting pot which dates long before the Revolutionary War. Its smoky rugged mountains create a quasi impenetrable western frontier, originally inhabited by Native American tribes including the Cherokee and Shawnee until a major wave of European settlers came in, primarily Irish and Scottish descent. And they arrived via federal land grants in the early, I'd say early 18th century. African-Americans came around this time as well, both freed and enslaved. These are the people that shaped the strong cultural traditions of the region. But what about the cuisine? What is it? It's as American as anything I can think of. It's been called the backbone of Southern cooking, and the trending chef, Travis Milton, said it's a way of cooking that, out of necessity, embraced preserving, canning, fermenting, and using every part of the animal long before it was trendy. Isolated from the outside, yet intrinsically bound to Native American culture as well as the foreign culture of those early immigrants, it is above all bound to the land of the region. And I have today with me someone to talk about what that food is, what that cuisine is, because so many times people say, "Ah, yeah, foods of Appalachia, what? But there are indeed particular foods that define this cuisine. And with me today is Fred Sossman. Fred is senior writer and associate professor of Appalachian Studies at East Tennessee State University. He's a member of the Southern Foodways Alliance and collector of oral histories, an editor of the fifth edition of Cornbread Nation with John T. Edge, gathering the best of southern food writing. His book, The Place Setting, Timeless Tastes of Mountain South from Bright Hope to Frog Level, has a- is actually a three-volume collection of stories and recipes from that region. And his newest book, Buttermilk and Bible Burgers, More Stories from the Kitchens of Appalachia, had- was recently released, I think, last year, Fred? Welcome to the show, Fred.
3: Oh, thank you, Linda, and thank you for giving me a chance to talk about the the cuisine of this wide, expansive area called Appalachia.
2: Well, wide, wide and expansive for sure, but before we even get there, let's talk about the pronunciation. You say Appalachia. Most everyone else here in my region says Appalachia. Tell us a little bit about that.
3: Well, you will hear that pronunciation change as you go farther north. Most people where I live, which is in Southern Appalachia pronounce it the way I just did, but I certainly won't be dogmatic about that at all. Um, Appalachian State University, which is in Boone, North Carolina, uses that pronunciation. Uh, and to me, it is the pronunciation that is closer to the Native American origins of the word. But again, um, we won't be uh, dogmatic or narrow-minded about that pronunciation. We'll We'll accept really any pronunciation, um, including the one I hear the most, Appalachia. <laughs>
4: mm-hmm.
2: um, so uh, then we'll talk about that. <laughs> we'll, we'll call it that because I, I like that, actually.
3: Um, yes. And uh, It wasn't a, a Native American word, Appalachee, uh, which referred to a Native American tribe, but actually existed far south of what is currently defined as appalachia there's some debate about how that name got applied to the region i've read theories that hernando de soto and his explorations into the lower south in the, the 1500s created that appalachian appalachian, appalachian. Um, but I'm not so sure that's true. I can't find anything to confirm that. As best I can determine, the name was adopted by a French explorer cartographer and applied to the region. Hmm. But as a name for the region, it really didn't come into vogue or into common usage until really late in the 19th century, around 1900, actually.
2: Hmm. Interesting. Well. And it's, it is such, you said, this vast region. I mean, for those who, who um, remember their, their grade school geography, I mean, it's a region that stretches from southern New York all the way to Alabama and Mississippi. But the food really, it seems, um, the, the cuisine is focused in the central region. Is that correct? Well I mean the history the the history of the region that I've
3: studied the most in southern and central Appalachia, but you're exactly right in describing the geographic boundaries of the region. The lower part of New York State, down through most of Pennsylvania, southeastern Ohio, all of West Virginia. West Virginia is the only state that is entirely within the defined boundaries of Appalachia. Of course you have eastern Kentucky, southwest Virginia. Western North Carolina, East Tennessee, almost half of Tennessee is in Appalachia, Mm. upstate South Carolina, northern Georgia, and just about half of the state of Alabama. So that makes it difficult to come up with generalizations about the food. We did an encyclopedia of Appalachia here at ETSU several years ago, and it is about five inches thick. So it's a complex region. Uh, The food changes. But some of the common dishes that you'll find revolve around corn beans and squash, and of course, those are um, inherited dishes from the Native Americans. as you explained, the cuisine really is a coming together of Native American, african American, and European.
2: yeah well, it's interesting because I you know a lot of people say well that's that's just home cooking well, and that's why I say it's about as American. Uh, you know, we're always, as as historians, many of us are trying to pin down what really defines American cuisine. Is there such a thing as American cuisine? And the cuisine of this region, I think, really does um, define what, yes, yes, it's home cooking, but it is as American as you can get.
3: Absolutely. And as far back as you want to go, those three products I mentioned, beans, corn, and squash were, as you well know, referred to as the three sisters.
4: Mm -hmm.
3: Native Americans grew them together, and they grew them together for very good reasons. Corn tends to remove nitrogen from the soil, and beans encourage its development in the soil. The corn provides a natural lattice structure for the bean plants to climb on and the squash is low growing so it provides shade for the feet of the other plants and holds in moisture so it's a symbiotic relationship and if I took you into a farmhouse in Appalachian now um, you would see those dishes um, and one of the things about Appalachian cuisine that really strikes me as profound is its simplicity and the desire to let the natural flavors of the products of the land show through. In that Appalachian farmhouse in the middle of the summer, the table might look something like this, a plate of sliced tomatoes, no seasoning, other than maybe a sprinkle of salt. Cucumbers bobbing in ice water, green onions, if they're still around, Um, maybe some slices of green pepper, Um, corn freshly picked and boiled. And the only thing that would be served to adorn that corn would be butter and salt.
4: Hmm.
3: Um, Almost sounds like a vegetarian diet. (laughs) You know, people would look at that table and almost interpret that. You might have a piece of country ham, for example. But I think oftentimes Appalachian food and southern food get a bad name as unhealthy. But uh, we eat a lot of greens here, uh, mustard greens, for example, uh, turnip greens. Farther south, you'll find collard greens. The sweet potato is one of the most nutritious food products on the planet. So, yeah, traditionally we've eaten a lot of hog fat in one form or another. But in the middle of the summertime, on that table, you'll find honest, simple, unadorned food. And I think that largely defines what this cuisine is all about. Mm. It may be why it hasn't gotten a whole lot of attention until recent years. Because it is so simple and so honest. But it's, it's a cuisine that pays tribute and homage to the land, just like my people.
2: All right. Well, it's. Uh, uh, the people
3: uh, I grew around, up around were very, very closely tied to the land. My father, you, as Travis Milton indicates in the quote you used, Appalachian food grew out of hard times. And you always have to remember that. My father's family were sharecroppers. Uh, he had eleven brothers and sisters, and they worked the land. Uh, but my family always talked about these connections between the food and the land. Uh, long before the word sustainable ever got into the <laughs> to the vernacular, we were practicing sustainable agriculture in Appalachia.
2: Well, that's that, and that is so true. And you say that you say that recently it's it 's sort of in vogue recently there have been conferences on appalachia and and it 's cuisine um, and uh, appalachia dinner story times and it 's a lot of attention suddenly paid to this cuisine um, it, uh, why do you think that is going back to because people sort of want to go back to their roots or they realize the the you say simplicity but the you know the pureness the the unadulterated um, food. We're always talking about knowing your food, where it comes from, and and uh, not, you know, not adulterating it. What, right. what do you attribute to this, this newfound interest in Appalachia?
3: Well, I think Appalachian cooking and Appalachian farming align so perfectly with the values of these so-called new movements that have really been around for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and when I look around this region... You know, I'm incredibly encouraged by, well, it's true all over the country, the flourishing farmer's markets here. Virginia now is in the top ten in farmer's markets in the country. I'm also encouraged by the fact that farming is now cool. <laughs> uh, when I was in high school and going into college, uh, if you said you were going to be a farmer, that was looked down upon. Mm -hmm. Now I think we've come full circle to where farming is valued, farming is respected. And I can't tell you the number of young people that I know in this area who have gone into farming and who are making it. For example, Jamie and Amy Ager over in Fairview, North Carolina, that's in Buncombe County, the same county that Asheville is in, run Hickory Nut Gap Farm. And they're doing very well. They do pastured pork, pastured poultry, grass-fed beef. Um, The cows experience rotational grazing from pasture to pasture. Um, They raise turkeys for Thanksgiving in the apple orchard. After the apples are harvested, they put the turkeys in to clean up the apple orchard. Um, Pigs almost roam um, unfettered and feed on what's in the woods, in the fields, acorns, for example. Uh, Jamie and Amir are just one example of the number of young folks I see going back into farming or going into farming for the first time. And that's... Incredibly encouraging.
2: Right. Well, farming, in, of course, playing a big role. And you talk about uh, Virginia being so prominent in the farming, the farmer's markets. But then comes, I mean, that's great. And so much of the region has long, a long growing season. but. Right. Then, and there's all you know that area higher in the mountains and then further um, further north, where the growing season is not quite so long, but they do what they have, what happens then in the winter months that is once again in vogue? The canning, preserving, pickling?
3: Yeah, I, I think Appalachian people, of course I'm very biased, having grown <laughs> up here having been educated here and having worked here all my life, but I think Appalachian people are among the best in the world at figuring out how to prolong the goodness of the garden. And I'll give you one example. A relish we call chow-chow. There are lots of ways to make chow-chow. In Pennsylvania, I've seen chow-chow that looks almost like succotash. I've seen a very minimalist chow-chow here that's not too much more than pickled cabbage. I've seen a very Baroque chow chow that has all kinds of ingredients that was made by a very special lady I came to know several years ago, and her name is Jeanette Carter. She's deceased, but she lived in Scott County, Virginia. She is the daughter of A.P. and Sarah Carter. They were known as the first family of country music, along with AP's sister-in-law, Mabel Carter. And luckily, about 14 years ago, I went to Scott County, Virginia, and sat down at Jeanette Carter's side and talked to her about this age-old chow-chow recipe, and she showed me how to make it. It has turmeric in it. It has cinnamon. Uh, the point of chow-chow is to use the end-of-the-garden products, that are not looking as pretty as they did in midsummer. And to prolong those products, tomatoes, peppers, cabbage, all that goes into chow chow. And in Jeanette's case, a whole lot of brown sugar. When the Carter family was getting very popular, um, in part because Johnny Cash married into the family, he married Maybelle's daughter, June. Uh, Jeanette Carter still made time in the late summer to make this chow-chow, and no no matter how much media attention the Carters were getting, it was important to her to go out in that garden, clear it out, and make this relish that would be served over soup beans in the wintertime. Now, here's an interesting thesis topic I'm trying to get a student to embrace. I was looking at variations of these pickled dishes across the world and I looked at Indonesian atjar, pickles. Mm -hmm. And strangely enough, the recipe for those Indonesian pickles almost mirrors exactly what Jeanette Carter put into her chow chow in Southwest Virginia 30, 40 years ago.
2: And here's
3: my unproven theory. When you look at food history, as you well know, it's oftentimes helpful to look at colonization Who owned whom? Who owned Indonesia for 300 years? Mm -hmm. The Dutch. I think this relish came out of Indonesia in the hands of the Dutch, got into Central and Western Europe, and in the hands of the Dutch and Germans, gets into Pennsylvania and eventually down into these mountains
2: interesting you may I hope not a
3: student will write a, a master's thesis about that connection because I, the more i think about it the more sense it makes
2: that's right and it may not be your student but after today's broadcast it may be one of the students who listen on the radio or on the podcast right yeah. um, you mentioned that uh, a lot of brown sugar went into that chow chow so that gets me to talking and thinking about sweets and sweetness and sorghum. Sorghum is indigenous to this, it's it's a product that is so used in this region. Tell me a little bit about, and you just did a documentary not long ago on on sorghum as well, right?
3: That's right, Linda. We did a film called Sunlight Makes It Sweeter about the making of sorghum syrup. And the making of sorghum syrup tells you so much about the Appalachian people. Appalachian people are hardworking folks Lazy people don't make sorghum. Sorghum is very labor-intensive. And to give a bit of the history, a lot of people confuse it with molasses. It's a different product entirely from molasses. Uh, Sorghum syrup comes from sorghum cane, which is a grass. And like a lot of our foods in Appalachia and the South, that grass had its origin in Africa. And eventually, it moves into Western Europe, and then into America fairly late in our history, along about 1850. Um, people began cultivating sorghum cane here. Sorghum cane has a fairly short growing season. Uh, in this area, the seed will be planted in late May, and that grass will grow to the point where in September, October, it can be cut And the process is to cut that cane and squeeze that juice out of it and then boil that juice down until you have a thick amber-colored syrup called sorghum syrup. It's a tricky thing to do. Um, It's hard to get the chlorophyll out of there. Mm. Uh, When you first see that juice, it looks green.
2: Yeah, I would imagine. Um,
3: There's so much sugar in there, it can burn easily. But this film features the work of the Gunther family. They operate Muddy Pond Sorghum on the Cumberland Plateau in Overton County, Tennessee. They are largely self-sufficient. They live in a Mennonite community. They aren't actually Mennonites themselves, but they embrace a lot of the same lifestyles and values. They raise almost everything they eat. And like a lot of people I've talked about, are very tied to the land. Uh, But yet they don't uh, spurn technology. They embrace technology. They're on Facebook all the time and Twitter promoting their products. Uh, But they're one of the largest sorghum producers in the South. And they still cultivate the fields with mules. Now, for demonstration purposes, say at Cades Cove in the Great Smoky Mountains National Park or at Dollywood, they will take mules and hitch them up to a cane mill and have them walk in circles to grind that cane. Hmm. That's pretty much for show. But back on the farm, Mark Gunther is cultivating those fields with mules, not tractors. Interesting. He doesn't do that because he hates technology. (laughs) He does it because he says the mules do a better job. Hmm. The mules don't compact the soil as much, the mules are more accurate, so it's fascinating to watch. That whole process, which we documented in this film,
2: is this documentary something that is available for people to, uh, to view?
3: Yes, uh, I have extra copies of it, and I don't know if you want to share my email address. Okay, uh, it's be not glad to do that, and we I, can I will
2: them. do that. It'll be on our on our website. Um, yeah, and it, but it's not something that's posted online. You, didn't, you didn't, haven't posted it on YouTube yet, huh? <laughs>
3: right, and one of the things people fight about here, and I still, I I run into this argument all the time, people want to call that product molasses, Mm -hmm. Um, and they'll swear, no, uh, my people in southwest Virginia made molasses. Well, technically, they did not, because molasses is a byproduct, as you well know, of the making of sugar, and sugar cane will not grow in this area. Uh, Sorghum cane has a growing season of just a few months, sugar cane much longer, so molasses down south in Louisiana, for example, is a byproduct of the making of sugar. Sorghum is not a byproduct. When you plant those cane seeds, you have one idea in mind. There's not an efficient way to get sugar out of that kind of cane. You've got one. You've got one purpose, and that's to make that syrup.
2: That's right. And if you go to, um, uh, I was always. Uh, surprised because i didn't know you go walk into a cafe in the region and on the table there will be a jar of sorghum and you know if it's not there people will ask where is it right i mean you're exactly right
3: Uh, there's a place called the farmer's daughter which is in chucky tennessee and it's one of these boarding house style places that are coming back uh before the meals end you will see about 14 different dishes on that table but Hmm. always that squeeze bottle of sorghum made by Mr. Arlen Johnson from right here in Washington County, Tennessee. And what you do, uh, the fancy term, I guess, would be a compound butter. You take uh, the butter and sorghum and vigorously mix it together and then put that on top of your cornbread or biscuits.
2: Sounds good to me. Well, speaking of <laughs> cornbread, we have a few other iconic dishes to discuss, and, um, and I definitely can't wait for that. But we're going to take a short break. So stay with us, and we'll be back with more foods from the Appalachia.
1: sponsor of Heritage Radio Network. OpenTable is home to the world's largest dining network, seating over 17 million diners every month. Their technology solutions help restaurants run and grow their businesses. That means providing memorable hospitality to every guest, streamlining front of house operations and optimizing seating to seat more diners and drive more business chefs restaurant and other industry professionals can find more tips and best practices for running a successful restaurant on their blog open for business at openforbusiness.opentable.com the one and only dave arnold brings the noise to heritage radio network every tuesday on cooking issues coming to you live on the heritage radio network from Roberta's pizzeria in bushwick and
4: brooklyn
1: <laughs> if the bomb was going to drop and you only had
0: 15 minutes. Which is like, I can, I can make a sandwich in 15 minutes. You'll be eating a sandwich. I, I'd kiss my wife, make a sandwich.
1: If you believe that it's all about to be over, why eat healthy? I'm not a freaking Neanderthal. I like a tempered ice cream sandwich. But it's the only way to get around it if you're a party master because you, you're going to wind up, like your kitchen's going to fill with dishes. And is Some there, people have commercial dishwashers in their house. Who? I've seen them. Who? I've seen them. Who? <laughs> really rich people. <laughs> For more Mile-A-Minute knowledge from Dave and the crew, listen to Cooking Issues, available on Heritage Radio Network, iTunes, and Stitcher.
2: Hi, we're back on A Taste of the Past, and I'm talking with Fred Saussman. And Fred is talking, he teaches um, Appalachian Studies at Eastern Tennessee State University. We're talking about the foods of Appalachia. And Fred, um, the you have... Um, quite a list that you supplied me, and then plus some more research I did that I can't wait to get into, and particularly in this season, I was just at the farmer's market yesterday, these stalls are filled with ramps, which have become so popular and so chic and in vogue, and yet people from Appalachia, a lot of people, considered it poor dirt food. Tell me a little bit about ramps.
3: Yeah, that's an example, including things like red-eye gravy of what we might call poor folks food that is now elevated to chic status. (laughs) Uh, And they're available now here too. Ramps are wild mountain leeks and traditionally in Appalachia they've had a bit of a bad reputation because of their pungency. They leave uh, your breath sort of smelling for a few days Um, and children were actually sent home from school because they had ramp breath (laughs) <laughs> As, that was kind of a mark of shame, except uh, among the Cherokees. Um, and the Cherokees valued that smell. That that was eating a vegetable or a plant that was good for you uh, in the morning, uh, something healthy. So showing up at a Cherokee school with ramp breath was not a sign of inferior status at all. It's a sign that you had something healthy for breakfast that morning. But the traditional belief in the mountains was that... During a period of relative inactivity in the wintertime, after that period, your blood needed thinning out, uh, that your blood had tended to pool in your body, and you needed something pungent and strong to thin that blood. And the ramp, as one of the first green things to appear on the forest floor, uh, served that function because of its strength. Um, there are ramp festivals all up and down Appalachia. Um, we cook at ramps with eggs, with potatoes. We have put them in salads. Just in the last, talking about the, the trendy nature of ramps, just in the last two weeks, I've seen tweets by Lydia Bastianich and Mario Batali both using ramps in their cooking. So chefs like them uh, have come to the point where they understand the value of this Ancient Appalachian
2: food. That's right. And those ramp festivals have managed to find their ways into the chic northeast as well. <laughs> that's right. Uh, and other places, I'm sure. Now, morel mushrooms, you that, that's a, a wonderful... Um, I mean, we, we think of that, again, as this, you know, uh, the French woods delicacies. But that's something that is is popular there. Tell me about morels.
3: Well, their season is pretty much right now in this area. I'm not a mushroom expert, but I have no discomfort in foraging morel mushrooms because they're so easily identifiable right. with that honeycomb structure. Um, around here, people fry them. Uh, you can sauté them with butter, of course, and nothing else, but the traditional way of making a dish called dry land fish in southwest Virginia is to do an egg wash and then dip those mushrooms into buttermilk and then roll them in cornmeal and fry them. Some people say the act of frying in cornmeal reminds people of how fish is fried, and that's the origin hmm. of the name dryland fish. Well,
2: and they certainly are meaty enough that it seems like a you know a dense protein once it's once it's
3: very meaty. Yes.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that brings me to killed lettuce. What's
4: killed? Yeah, lettuce? killed
3: lettuce. <laughs> that's another thing very seasonal right now. Um, lettuce. Oftentimes combined with green onions, uh, could be branch lettuce too um, that grows along the side of a stream in the mountains. Uh, that is picked and then killed, so to speak, with what we would call a hot bacon vinaigrette, uh, bacon grease and vinegar, to the point where those vegetables wilt. Sean Brock in uh, Nashville at Husk serves that along with cornbread. So. Yeah, other than the bacon grease, there's another example of the dish that's really good for you.
2: That's right. There you go. Okay, you mentioned cornbread once again. Okay, let's get to soup, beans, and cornbread.
3: Yeah, if if there is an iconic meal, I want to get to dried apple stack cake too as a dessert. Oh, we will. We will. <laughs> we will. But if there's an <laughs> iconic meal in Appalachia, it's got to be soup, beans, and cornbread, and. Again, you can see the Native American connections with those two dishes. Soup beans are different from bean soup. Bean soup has more stuff in it. Soup beans generally are pinto beans, dried pinto beans, that are cooked in water with some sort of pork, um, usually lard, as they are prepared at my favorite restaurant, the Bean Barn in Greenville, Tennessee, with a side of cornbread. And, of course, Native Americans were using ground corn long before Europeans arrived on these shores.
2: Hmm. Well, that's it. certainly cornbread is something that is um, a I would say an iconic dish in itself. But then again, as it is in the South, and that brings me to a question that is how what how do you differentiate between southern cuisine, and a lot of Appalachian cuisine.
3: Well, there are are overlaps, Mm -hmm. of course, because part of Appalachia is in the south. But one differentiation, I think, is what you do with gravy. Um, I'm kind of an anomaly because I like my gravy on rice. But generally around here, people put their gravy on mashed potatoes or biscuits. Farther south you get, um, you see gravy on rice. Even in upstate South Carolina, which is part of Appalachia, in Spartanburg, you begin to see the tip of the rice and gravy belt. So that's one way of defining um, the difference. Another way is the type of greens that you would use. In Appalachia, generally, it's mustard and turnip. Go farther south and you get Collards.
2: mm-hmm well you and mentioned that in the beginning that really it's a lot of it depended on the ingredients that what was growing in that particular region but they right but still it was all still that the simple preparation and the uh, yeah, like the good home cooking
3: uh, yeah and, and collards tolerate heat better than those other greens, so it makes sense
2: right uh, something we didn't touch on and that was whiskey making, moonshine. Well, that was that was certainly a means of of income for a lot of people in the area.
3: Yeah, a means of income and a means to uh, <laughs> a means for entertainment. <laughs> uh, moonshine industry now is booming in this area. You find moonshine distilleries all over. Um, you Go down to um, the Sevier County area; moonshine is everywhere. I've not written a whole lot about moonshine, but it just, the point of moonshine to me is to illustrate the versatility of a corn plant. Um, We get a drink from it. We used to make bedding out of corn. we made dolls to play with out of corn, Mm. in addition to all the myriad uses like grits and cornmeal and just eating it off the cob. So moonshine is another illustration to me of how central and how vital the corn plant is to the culture of this area all right one, one thing that's happening to moonshine though <laughs> we're getting away from the clear corn uh, whiskey look and getting these designer flavors i know a place over in north carolina that makes kiwi moonshine <laughs> uh, there is apple pie moonshine there is cherry moonshine so um, i guess just another example of the emerging nature of food ways and drink ways in Appalachia.
2: Well, some people attribute it to the Scots who came over and, you know oh, absolutely Scottish known being famed for their whiskies.
3: I mean that's right. Do we have a uh, time to talk about dried apple stack cake?
2: Well we certainly do. I mean, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna leave the show without that. And I am gonna leave that as a dessert, as you rightly said. Um, and po- I poke, I would I wanted to talk about poke some things that are not very familiar to a lot of people, a lot of our listeners, and that would be Um, Two things I mentioned before, stack cakes, because we're going to go into that in depth, uh, poke and vinegar pie.
3: Uh, Poke has a type of greens, Um, and vinegar pie is really an old recipe that goes back to the 19th century. Also, buttermilk pie, pies with acidic things in them are very popular in the, popular in the South and Appalachia. Vinegar pie doesn't sound terribly appetizing, nor perhaps does buttermilk pie, but that little bit of acidity in a sugary pie provides wonderful balance.
4: Right. Um,
3: sometimes lemon is used, but uh, lemons at times in our history were scarce. So instead of using a lemon in a pie, you use vinegar.
2: All right, that works. Okay, are you ready? Now we're going to talk about the dried apple stack cake.
3: Right. Uh, This may be the iconic dessert in Appalachia, the dried apple stack cake. My friend Joe Dabney down in uh, South Carolina calls it the most mountain of desserts. (laughs) And here's another example of something that is relatively unadorned. My wife makes her grandmother's dried apple stack cake recipe. And it's over 100 years old, probably 120 years old. And there is no spicing in it whatsoever, not even vanilla extract. The only adornments on that cake are fork pricks and a scattering of sugar on top.
2: Well, those spices uh, would not have been available, you know, way back when. Right.
3: That's exactly right. Um, and it doesn't need the spices for its flavor, in my opinion. Um People have tried to change this recipe. A couple of magazines, uh, uh, one cookbook author—they've taken the recipe and attempted to add spices to it. And in some cases, left my wife's name on there, which she got really upset about huh. because there's no spicing in it whatsoever. Um, but Natalie Dupree, in her book *Mastering the Art of American* or *Mastering the Art of Southern Cooking*, used the recipe as it originally was written. It's a seven-layer cake. There is sorghum, by the way, in the batter. Um, It's not a cake that's terribly sweet or terribly fatty, so as cakes go, it's pretty good for you. Seven layers. The only thing in the middle of those layers would be the dried apples that you have reconstituted. Those apples are cooked in water only, maybe a little sugar if the the apples need it, and then that cake is assembled. This is a labor-intensive cake. It's one reason you don't see it very often in restaurants. My wife makes it for the very last meeting of my class every fall, except for 2014 when she was getting a kidney transplant at Vanderbilt. Uh, But she made two cakes and invited that class back in 2015. So I'm very proud of her for keeping this old, old recipe going and staying true to it.
2: That's that's amazing. It's and it's beautiful to look at too. I will post a picture of that for people um, on the site. And as soon as you get that to me, and I will do that. Um, and uh, and and sounds delicious. Now, why why only with the dried apples? Is it ever made with fresh apples? Uh,
3: it, I suppose it was, but her re- recipe always calls for the dried apples, and those apples were dried you know, on top of a roof, in the back of a car, Uh, the drying intensifies the flavor, Mm -hmm. really. It it preserves the apples for later use, of course, but it also intensifies the flavor. Um, You can cheat, I guess, and use apple sauce, but it is so much better with those reconstituted dried apples, so much better.
2: Well, then it doesn't have to sit in sort of, uh, like cure or (laughs) intensify its
3: flavor. That's part of the story, too. Um, You hear about children in the mountains getting into trouble because they cut into this cake. We're so excited about it. They cut into this cake too quickly. It does have to cure. It does have to sit for about three days for the flavors to develop. Um, And there, there are some theories about the origin of this cake that I don't really embrace. One theory is the Harrod family in Kentucky invented this cake i don't think that's true at all i don't think we'll ever know who invented dried apple stack cake if you cut through those seven layers and look at the the texture and thickness and look at that apple filling it's pretty clear to me that this is a relative of the german torts again following that migration pattern Mm -hmm. from germany into Pennsylvania, then down through the mountains into southwest Virginia, western North Carolina, eastern Kentucky, east Tennessee, where that cake is found.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they and the Germans at holiday time make a a very, um, for those who don't know the stat cake, the layers are very thin. They're not a, a real thick, almost like a, exactly. envision like a large pancake, you know, piled up, right. many pancakes. And the Germans do make, you're right, they, and I can't think of the name right away but it's it is a multi-layered cake Mm -hmm. with uh, filling in between and it's actually made on a wheel but it's something that is again a labor-intensive cake but very delicious and the gets better the longer it sits and I can see that this it's so interesting that all of these um, recipes as oh I hate to say simple because there's nothing really simple about them but the simplicity in in the cooking that they have such deep historic roots and and they're so telling of the of the cultural traditions of the area and there's are so many more we could talk about but people can do reading and now that they're if they're hungry now and curious they can read about them and certainly from your um your most recent book, Buttermilk and Bible Burgers, More Stories from the Kitchens of Appalachia. Fred Saussman, it has been a pleasure, and I know we could talk for a long time about so many more dishes, but it's lunchtime for me, and I'm getting really hungry. So yeah. <laughs> I'm going to have to cut it off here. All right. And thank you so much for listening to A Taste of the Past. It's been a joy. Past. Thank you. <laughs> a Taste of the Past. And I'm your host, Linda Palacio.